Welcome back to the Hollow Sky Podcast. We're your hosts, Stephen and Kyle. Thank you for tuning back in with us today. Thanks for telling all of your weird friends. That's a very important aspect of the show. It's for you guys to tell all your friends about your two favorite podcast hosts. It is kind of your guys' responsibility to do that. <laughs> and spread all the weird love. It's true. Um, today, I'm going to take us on a journey over to Mother Russia and a skiing, hiking party gone awry. But before we get to that, we're going to go through all of the business, which is check us out at all our social medias, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, search up the Hollow Sky Podcast, and we shall be there. Come on over, share memes, talk about weird shit, talk about funny shit, just interact with everybody, have a good time, build a good community. You know the deal. Come over and share your personal experiences that you've had with the paranormal and the creepy and if you want to do that kyle's going to tell you how to do that i am going to tell you how to do that you can shoot us an email at hollowskypodcast at gmail.com you can also record your story you can uh video record your story it doesn't really matter you can use the voice memo app on your phones the camcorder on your phones whatever you got that can record you then just go ahead and shoot it over to the email. We'll be able to change it around, get it on the show, talk about your experience, and have a good time. Hell yeah, just live your best life. That's what we try to do here. Um, if you check us out on any podcast apps, uh, preferably iTunes or Apple, hop on over there and leave us a five-star rating and review. If I can find them, I will shout you out, I promise. Like we had one from YouTube on the last episode that I thought was dope. Any of our YouTube listeners that want to say some kind words, we will gladly include you in the mix. Um, today, our five-star rating and review is from our friend Lalo. It says, the best podcast. Such an amazing podcast. I could listen to this all day. Well, thank you for the kind words, first and foremost. I wish that we had enough episodes that you could listen to us all day. Yeah, for sure. Every day. Get to the point where me and Steve quit our jobs, and all we do is talk to you guys. Hell yeah. All day, every day. Travel make the it world. Let's make it Hunting happen. demons. Well, yeah. Except sure. I'll be by myself. You so. will be by yourself. I apologize for all of the water bottle background noise, but I'm quite parched. Yeah, it so happens. We're going to deal with that. While you're out looking for demons, I'll be at camp barbecuing for us. Hell yeah. Barbecuing demons? Yeah. Delicious. That's what we do. Um, Today, for our listener experiences, we have a couple... Well, we ha I'm going to do two here, but they're not exactly experiences. They're kind of follow-ups and suggestions. So, first is from our friend Jay. He had this story about um, they were messing with the Ouija board. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. blew the candle out. Yep. He uh, hit us back a little while ago, so I'm just following up with that. He says, hey, guys, wanted to answer your question about my experience. My brother has never had any experiences, and we lost contact many years ago with the friends he had over that night. So I'm not sure if they had any other experiences of paranormal activity. I should have mentioned in my recording that the window and fan were on the opposite side of the room, 10 to 12 feet from the open door that slammed shut, making it more difficult to dismiss as a breeze catching the door just right. I do like Steve's idea that it could have been something let us, letting us know that we are messing around with something we shouldn't be. Thanks for hearing my experience on your podcast. Food for thought. Don't know how you guys feel about a GoFundMe, but it could help pay for both of you to go to places such as the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast or other places you mentioned on your episodes of your podcast. Will also would be an opportunity to meet some of your listeners in the areas of interest. 
seems you develop quite a following, and I'm sure many of your listeners would be happy to make a small or large donation for you to go on field trips to places mentioned on some of your episodes. Maybe even your, or maybe even have your listeners choose where you go via poll posted on your social media pages. How cool would it be to record your podcast from some of these locations? If you ever find yourself in Fall River, Massachusetts, I would be happy to show you around town, grab dinner, and talk about what happened, if anything, during your stay. I've never stepped foot in the Lizzie Borden bed and breakfast, so maybe I'd join you. Lots of Portuguese culture in Fall River, so there are many restaurants with their cuisine. If you haven't had Portuguese food, you're missing out. Just something to think about, Jay. Hell yeah, Jay. We appreciate the kind words, and I'll go ahead and and go off on here. Um, Jay, well, if I've never had Portuguese food before. But, Me either, but I'm down. But um, if Portuguese chunky. people know how to make a good fucking cheeseburger, I'm there. That's porcha cheese. Porcha cheese. I like burger. that. Porcha <laughs> cheeseburger. Yeah, I'm I'm down for trying anything. I'll try anything once or twice. Well, I'm not I'm not exactly as open minded as Steve is when it comes to trying different foods. I'm also quite a bit chunkier than Kyle. Well, so I'm rather picky and that's just who I am. But if it looked good, I I would try it. I'm not I'm gonna definitely lie. Definitely down. Yeah, Steve would Steve would go no matter what. Worst case scenario, you guys go get Portuguese. I pick up some cheeseburgers. We find a cool place to sit down and <laughs> have a meal. <laughs> um, but as you had mentioned, as far as a GoFundMe goes, we're actually putting together a Patreon. Now, I know I've talked about it before. It's basically kind of like a subscription service where you can help support your podcast. Um, a lot of indie podcasts do it who don't have any sort of uh, – What's the word I'm looking for? Monetary. Uh, uh, advertisements. Yeah. Don't use advertisements. They don't have any monetary income, so everything they're doing is independent and in-house, and they're funding it themselves. So with a Patreon, you can do a $3 subscription a month or a $5 or a $10, and then the podcast will release additional content and merchandise to their Patreons. So we're thinking about putting into place. We're getting some stuff put together to do that, getting some tiers created probably have some additional content like yeah. maybe maybe one or two episodes a month go to patreons or something like that and we've got some additional merch put together and we're getting this all boxed and ready to go before we release it to hopefully build some money to get some better equipment to help hosting costs and to possibly travel around and see some of these weird places and meet some of you weirdos for sure and you know like steve said we don't have any monetary income we're currently waiting on monster to get back to us yeah, if Monster wants on to. the sponsorship, but you know it's been kind of dead conversation for a little while. <laughs> Mostly conversations on me and Steve's end, but that's besides the point. Mostly because nobody at Monster knows that we want to be sponsored. Yeah, so maybe even when I post the heading for this on Instagram, I'm gonna go ahead and tag Monster and say <laughs> we're waiting on that sponsorship. <laughs> but pulling it back in, yes, we are trying to work on something so we can get out and about eventually. And uh, definitely appreciate the suggestion, Jay. For sure. We appreciate it a lot. Um, next, I just got a little email. It's not a personal experience, but it's just kind of a food for thought. And this is awesome because I want more of you all to do this. Feel free to use uh, Messenger and our email address as you see fit. We love to kind of have this interaction with all of you. So this is from our friend Peter. It says, hey, guys, sitting here eating lunch and listening to the Black Eyed Kid ep- Kids episode. Something came to mind. Alien greys are described as childlike in size. They are also said to have big black eyes. Do you think they could be related in some way? Just a thought I'd share to see what you guys think. Thanks. Thanks, Peter. 
oh man, that, I never really made the correlation because I always thought of black eyed kids to be more, um, almost like spiritual paranormal, I guess, yeah. for lack of a better term. I never really associated them with alien grays, but now that you put that together, it does, it does make sense as far as their, the physicality. They look similar. They do, but it, for me, I still feel like they're more spiritual in nature. The only way that I could wrap my brain around the connection would be if the children were more or less a screen memory or some type of, uh, what do you want to say, like projection yeah, in cover yeah. for the grays, but I don't... Trying to make themselves more approachable and yes. atta- obtainable by taking a form of something we're used to, like yeah, we talked it, about before. It seems like, in the most part, like I, I definitely understand how your train of thought would it would take you down that road, but it seems like the, the, the black-eyed kids are a little more malicious in nature, and I don't know, it just, for me personally... If it has that more demonic feel to it, like malevolent and we're here to fuck shit up. Yeah. And I don't know. They kind of they kind of both if you look at it from like a a demonic point of view, like ghosts and things that are from the human realm do not scare me. Like as far as ghosts and stuff like that. Shit like aliens, and I mean, demons are pretty freaky too, but they don't really scare me. But those things have like, they have no connection to human beings. You're right. You know yeah. what I mean? Like a ghost was a human. It can empathize with a human. I don't even think aliens give a shit about humans. I I'm with you. I I feel like the majority of them probably don't give a shit. And demons just want to manipulate humans. So yeah, they want to be dicks. I don't know. I can definitely see how you come to that correlation, and it is... For sure. It is... did definitely make me think differently about it, because they are... The physicality of it does seem similar. Absolutely. I, I've i always been... This made me think of a story, which we're going to go on tangent here. I've always been into paranormal and aliens and shit my entire life, for as long as I can remember. And my mom bought me this VHS tape on UFO abductions, and I remember being so fucking scared watching this video. I was sitting in the living room, and this guy was being interviewed, and he was telling about the first time he had made uh, contact with an alien in a series of multiple abductions. But he said he was young, and it was just after dusk, and... They had, on their back porch, they had a light on, and they had an old wash tub sit at the corner of their house. Well, as he was sitting there at the table doing his homework or whatever, he heard something dragging this wash tub across the concrete of their back porch. Awesome. Just dragging it. And then he heard it stop under the window. He's like, what is going on? Because he said he was young. He's probably like Uh, 10 years old. I remember the story now. And then he said... He watched some. Essentially, the gray climbed up onto the wash tub and peered in through the kitchen window to watch him. And they had a drawing of it. Oh my god, that shit scared me so much when I was nope. little. I, so much. In my macho man head, I would be like, 
I'm going to punch this alien right <laughs> through my window, and I don't give a shit about my window. But in, in reality, yeah. you just take a piss. Yeah, probably. I would probably <laughs> sit there and go, what the fuck is going it on? It scared me so bad. Like, I, here I am, 35 years old, still talking about it. And I was so. Oh, I my, wish I still had the VHS. Uh, I might have it somewhere. It's fucking creepy. That is creepy. Aliens are fucking weird. They're super weird. <laughs> but now, you guys are going to have to bear with me on this. Because, like I said, we're going to take a magical, <laughs> mystical trip over to Mother Russia. And you know what that means? Me mispronouncing a fuck ton of Russian names. It's better you than me because I'm worse. Please bear with me in this. Do not tune out because you're listening to me butcher a bunch of Russian. Yeah, I literally looked at Steve's notes and I thought at first he just like got mad and anger typed into the computer. And he's like, no, those are all Russian names. I'm like, well, have fun with that. Yeah. So just stick with me. The story is one of my favorite paranormal stories. And I decided to do it this week because. Just recently, they uh, reopened and closed the case for a second time. And this is the Dyatlov Pass incident. So I'm going to go through what happened, and we're going to talk about theories and try to figure out what the hell happened and not believe the government that said it was an avalanche because that's the dumbest shit I've ever heard in my life. So there. Awesome. Okay, Dyatlov Pass. Story takes place in the northern region of the Ural Mountains of Russia. A group consisting of nine hikers, mostly students of the Ural Polytechnic Institute, ventured off for a skiing trip. The nine skiers were, here's the part where you bear with me, Igor Dyatlov, Yuri Doroshenko, Lyudmila Dubaninya, Yuri Kronovskinko, Kirnovshinko? Yeah. Well, yeah, perfect. Alexander Koletitov, Zinyata Komogorova, Rustin Slobodin, Nikolai Brignolos, Semyon Zolotarov, and Yuri Yudin. Thank you for still list- be listening. <laughs> the group was formed for a skiing expedition across the northern Ural Mountains in what was the Servdlosk Oblast Soviet Union. The group was led by uh, Dyatlov. He was a 23-year-old radio engineering student at the Ural Polytechnic Institute, which is now the Ural Federal University. Dyatlov was the leader of the trip, and he assembled the nine hikers. Most of uh, the fellow, or most of them, were fellow students and peers at the university. The group consisted of eight men and two women. So there essentially were ten, but as you'll see, things get kind of construed here later. Each were experienced grade two hikers with uh, ski tour experience, and completing this trip would grant them grade three certification upon return. At the time, grade three was the highest level of certification available in the Soviet Union and required the candidates to traverse almost 200 miles to be eligible for grade three. The route was mapped and planned by Dyatlov's group and uh, was researching the far north region of the area in the uppermost streams of the Lozva River. The route was approved by the uh, Sverdlovsk Committee of Physical Culture and Sport on January 8th, 1959 and confirmed the trip for 10 people. The goal of the trek was to reach the mountain Gora Otorten and it was estimated to be a Category 3 trek which is the most difficult hiking trek that there is. So, none of these people were inexperienced. They all had they were all at least grade two applying to be grade three hikers and skiers. So they're heading off onto what is a pretty difficult terrain, but 
like I said, none of them are new to this. They're all pretty well used to it. Yeah, and we all know Russians are tough as nails anyway, so. Probably fought bears all the way there. I'm sure they did. So on January 23rd. That was grade one. Yeah. By the way. You have to fight one bear. (laughs) Then grade two, you have to fight a bear on a shark. Shit. Yeah, we are failing. On January 23rd, 1959, the Dyatlov group was given a route book, number five, from the committee, and it had listed ten people instead of the original nine, adding Simeon Zolotorov to the group as he was previously certified to go on a similar trek with equal, equal difficulty, but he did not make it there in time. So they got this guy added right at the end. Most of the ones from the Polytechnic Institute are all in their early 20s, whereas Zolotaryov was almost 40. So he was kind of the odd man out. Yeah, something fishy with that. Gets weirder. Great. Hold on to that thought. Okay. So the group leaves. They arrive by train to a town called Ivdel in the northern province of uh, Sverdlovsk Oblast on the morning of January 25th, 1959. From there, they took a truck to Vizhai, a village that is the last inhabited settlement that far north. While staying in Vizhai, the hikers are said to have purchased snacks and loaves of bread to keep their energy up for the next day's hike. On January 27, 1959, they began their trek toward Gorotin from Vizhai, or Otorten, Gorotorten. The following day, one of the hikers, Yuri Yudin, would turn back and return to Vizhai due to knee and joint pain that would prevent him from continuing the hike. Little did he know, that bum-ass knee saved his life. So. Lucky. Lucky. The group of nine hikers continued. Diaries and cameras found at the location of their last known campsite made it possible to track their route up to the day preceding the incident. On January 31st, the group arrived to a highland area and began to set up for climbing. In a nearby valley, the group stashed their surplus of food and supplies they would need for the trip back. The following day, February 1st, the group started to traverse the pass. It seemed as though they had planned to make it over the pass and set up camp for the next night on the opposite side, but weather weather conditions went south and a snowstorm ravaged the pass. It made visibility horrible, causing the group to seemingly lose direction and move west toward the top of Kola Sakal, which is the mountain that they're on, which translates to Dead Mountain. Awesome. Yep. That's where we need to be. Why do people go to places named like this? We've covered this before. Yeah. And Missing 411, it's all over the place. Yeah. It has a shitty name for a reason. It's like Dead Man's Hole or whatever. Don't go there. Do you think it got the name Dead Mountain because people went there and survived? No. No. Piss. So, anyway. They needed their grade three. Yeah. (laughs) When they realized the mistake, they decided to stop and set up camp there on the slope of the mountain, rather than move almost a mile downhill to a forested area that would have offered them shelter from the weather. They had made plans to keep in contact with their friends and family back home as Dyatlov had agreed before leaving to send a telegram to their sports club as soon as the group made it back to Vizai. This was expected to happen around February 12th. However, Dyatlov had told Yudin before he left the group that he expected it to be a little bit later since weather conditions were worsening. So when the 12th came and went with no message, nobody was immediately concerned. It was only over a week later... On the 20th, that the families, uh, family members of the people on the expedition demanded that a rescue operation be put into place. 
The head of the institute sent the first rescue group consisting of volunteer students and teachers. Later, the military would join in the search with planes and helicopters. A week after the rescue team was sent out on February 26th, the searchers found the group's badly damaged abandoned tent on Kolat Sakal. Dead Mountain. The scene baffled the search party. One of the searchers, Mikhail Sharavin, a student who found the tent, said the tent was torn in half and torn down and covered in snow. It was empty with all of the it was empty of people with all of the group's belongings and some of their shoes left behind. Investigators said stated that the tent had been cut open from the inside. Nine sets of footprints left by people wearing only socks or a single shoe or even barefoot could be followed leading down the mountain toward the edge of a nearby forest. On the opposite side of the pass, almost one mile to the northeast. However, after about 500 500 yards, the track became covered with snow. At the forest edge beneath a a large Siberian pine tree, searchers found the remains of a small campfire as well as the first two bodies. These were the bodies of Kervonoshenko and Doroshenko. They were both shoeless and dressed only in their underwear, and they both had severe burns on their hands. Branches on the trees or on the tree nearby was broken up to five meters high, suggesting that they were trying to climb and look for something, perhaps the camp. So five meters is a pretty good, pretty good climb. Yeah, what's that translate to? Uh, about fifteen feet. That's a what bit I higher. thought. A little bit higher than fifteen feet. So I was. That's pretty fucking. That's pretty up there. Yeah, I was thinking about that. Them trying to climb this big ass pine tree, and there's all these broken branches. So. See, for me, being a person who climbs trees... Yeah, you're the tree guy. Um, I see some issues with that in the theory that they were climbing. Only because when, normally when you climb, and it depends on... I mean, I don't know... I don't really know the structure of these trees, but normally... You've never been to Siberia? No, I have not. And I don't think that I will go because I don't like the cold. Copy that. But, you know, going back to the topic here, uh, so... it. When you're climbing a tree and you use, usually those types of trees are kind of built like ladders, so to speak, because they have branches everywhere and you can kind of just shimmy up them. But the closer you grab that branch to the actual trunk of the tree, that's where it's the toughest. Like it's, it's less likely to break there, right? Now, the farther you are out on that branch, the more likely that branch will break break, because, you know, the weight, gravity, blah, 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 blah. So, my question and problem with it is: is a normal person would go to the trunk and climb it, Work your way up. whereas, I mean, if they were out of their mind or whatever is going on, because we haven't gotten there, but I don't understand why you would want to climb it further away from the trunk where it's more likely to break. Not to mention, I mean, we all know branches bend. Yeah, you know, I, th- I essentially thought like. Maybe it was a small tree, but all the information said a large Siberian pine tree. So, right. I'm not sure how large Siberian pine trees get, but I'm assuming it's a pretty big right. tree. So, I was thinking about these broken branches. Their initial statement is that they think that they were trying to climb the tree to see something, possibly the tent. Okay. My brain went to maybe they were trying to get away from something. Which is possible. Which which you're gonna if if something is after you Yeah, you're gonna shimmy you're, up that. You're gonna reach it the closest thing you can get to pull yourself right, up. Right, absolutely. 
then I kind of went to what if they were breaking the branches for firewood? It's possible. Breaking it off. So, Which would make sense as to why they were broken farther out. Yeah. You know, because that's where they're going to be most likely to break. And then their hands being badly burnt tells me they were super close to their fire trying to, trying to keep their yeah, hands warm. That's what I thought, too. Trying to keep their hands warm or trying to build the fire, keep the fire going. Right. So, between I mean, I'd the, say it's all pretty sound. Yeah. You know, as far as breaking it all down, it all sounds logical. Yeah, but it, it goes a bunch of different ways, you know. Right. You're either trying to climb the tree to find your tent or climb the tree to get away from something. or Like a wolf or yeah, whatever. Between the pine tree and the camp, the searchers found three more bodies, Dyatlov, Komogorova, and Slobodin. The way the bodies were found suggests that they were attempting to return to the tent. They were found separately at distances of 300, 480, and 630 yards from the tree. It would be two months later before the four remaining hikers are found. On May 4th, under 13 feet of snow in a ravine, 75 yards further into the woods from the pine tree, the bodies of the four other hikers were found. They were, dre- they were dressed well more, or more well off than the first five bodies. And there were signs that those who had died first had their clothes relinquished to the other hikers. Uh, Dubanina was wearing Kurnoshkovic's burnt torn pants and her left foot and shin were wrapped in a torn jacket um real quick before we get any farther so these people that were found 300 480 and 630 yards from the tree so that's from the tree they were trying to quote unquote climb right yeah were they go were, were those people going further into the woods they were going back to the tent they're going so they, they assume they were going back to the tent so if you're th- you, that the theory could be sound that they were actually trying to climb to see where maybe roundabout the tent would be. I mean, yeah. it kind of makes sense at that point. And then it, what sucks is the fact that it's almost like they're all working their way out to their own death. You know, it's just like, well, Steve made it that far. Let's see how much farther try, I can make yeah, it. Yeah, try to make another one. You know, so I mean, it's that sucks. I mean, they probably didn't. I wouldn't assume they'd saw each other perish, so to speak, but it would still fucking suck. <laughs> crazy and like, like up to this point it, it sounds horrifying because i would not want to be up there stuck in that shit and like it said dubanina was wearing kravonashenko's burnt pants yeah like was he that close to the fire i've been Probably. outside like they said it was stupid cold like between negative 10 and negative 30 degrees fahrenheit but if you got a fire going enough to set your pants on fire, you're probably warm enough. You ain't got to be sitting on top of that fire. You right. Know what I mean, but I, well, I assume it was probably windy and stuff up there. I, yeah. I would assume. Yeah. They said it was pretty rough. Which I mean, I'm with the right, right out of the bat. Like, why didn't you guys just go down to the tree line to camp out of the wind, anyways? Yeah. Well, they but. said that that Dyatlov had made that choice to stay there because he didn't want to lose. This is their assumption he didn't want to uh, lose any altitude okay progress yeah. that they'd already made true yeah because obviously it was what more than 600 yards away i mean that is a little bit of a jaunt especially in the in negative 10 degree weather yeah. in the ice and the snow yeah yeah okay that makes sense uh bizarrely it's also noted that zolotaryov who was one of the uh, last people found had fled the tent with his camera but he didn't grab any other gear that's weird weird 
A legal inquest started immediately after the first five bodies were found. A medical examination found no injuries that might have led to their deaths and was eventually concluded that they had all died of hypothermia. Slobodin had a small fracture to his skull, but it was not thought to be fatal. Nothing weird so far, right? Not really. You're in the Siberian or in the Russian winter and five of the people who supposedly got caught up in this avalanche, died of hypothermia. Makes sense. For sure. The examination of the other four bodies that were found in May would greatly shift the conclusion of what had occurred during the incident. Three of the hikers had fatal injuries. Uh, Brignoles had a major fracture to his skull, which caused death, and both Dubinina and Zolotaryov had major chest rib fractures. Forensic expert Boris Vazrodini stated the force required to cause such damage would be so extremely high it would be comparable to the force of a car crash. Also, the body had the bodies had no external wounds associated with bone fractures as they had been subjected almost as if they had been subjected to an immense level of pressure. So the inside of their bodies looked like they'd been hit by a car, but the outside of their bodies had no bruising That's or weird. anything of that nature. Could something like that happen if you were to be buried under a bunch of snow? Some people say yes, because they were found under about thirteen feet of snow. Right. I don't. I don't. I don't know anything about it. So it sounds like it could happen, but could go either way. Yeah. All four bodies found at the bottom of the ravine had been retrieved from a small running stream of water, which means that there was a, a stream underneath all the snow, which I thought was fucking weird, but it could happen. They all had soft tissue damage to their face and head. Dubinina was missing her tongue, her eyes, part of her lips, as well as facial tissue and fragments of her skull. What does that sound like? Okay. Not good. Sounds like some sort of mutilation that aliens do to cattle. That is true. Cattle mutilation. That is true. That's fucking creepy. Zolotaryov was missing his eyeballs and... Fuck. Kolovatov was missing his eyebrows. It's reported that these injuries had... They reported that the injuries had happened post-mortem due to the location of the bodies in the stream. However, it has been reported that Dubinina had copious amounts of coagulated blood in her stomach, suggesting that she was still alive at the time her tongue was removed. So, if there was an avalanche, I could totally see someone biting their tongue off. Yeah, and pl- plucking their own eyes out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fuck, this avalanche is coming. I better pluck my eyeballs out and bite my tongue off. Cool. So initially, the finger was pointed at the indigenous Mansai people, who are local reindeer herders, to the area. It was suggested that they may have attacked and murdered the group for encroaching on their territory. Several Mansai were uh, interrogated, but the nature of the hiker's death did not support this theory, as well as... Only the hikers' footprints were found in the area, and they showed zero signs of defensive wounds or hand-to-hand struggles. Hey, Hollow Cult. The weather's getting nice, and you know what that means. It's cryptid hunting season. And the first rule to cryptid hunting is good footwear. That's why we're excited to announce our partnership with Tecovis Boots. When you're out hunting the dogman or stalking Chupacabra, you don't have time to break in boots. That's why Tecovis is so nice. They have first wear comfort. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with their styles when you're out hunting cryptids. And let me tell you, their styles are on point. I've always considered getting me a pair of snakeskin boots, 
and their pair is mint. They also have crocodile boots, caiman boots, ostrich boots, regular leather boots. They they have it all, and it's re- it's ridiculously awesome. You can even stop by their the local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and a friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. So just imagine yourself getting a pair of legitimate snakeskin Hollow Sky branded boots. How awesome would that be? Nothing is going to intimidate a dog man like a nice pair of gator skin boots. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. That's even weirder. Dude, it's it's fucking weird. Even even in the case of an avalanche, right? Like say you're you're up there in your tent, mind your own fucking business, and then you have all this crazy ass snow coming down and it hits you like a freight train, you would think that you're gonna it's gonna tumble you and I'm not a fucking snow expert by any means, so I apologize if I screw this up. You're not? No, I'm not. Just by what you may have heard, I'm not a snow expert. My whole life is a fucking lie. I'm telling you. Um, but you, one would think that if it is pushing you down a mountain, sooner or later, you're going to run into a rock or a tree or some other hard object to at least cut your skin and break uh, bones. When I get to the end of this, I'm going to break this all down, and it's, it is pissing okay. me off. Yeah, go. It's pissing me off. One, two, three, go. Uh, journalists reporting on the case stated that available parts of their inquest or of the inquest filed they had found. Here are some facts according to the inquest. Six of the group had died of hypothermia, three of other fatal injuries. There's no indication of anyone else in close proximity on Colette Sakal apart from the nine hikers. The tent had been ripped or cut open from the inside out. All of the victims had died six to eight hours after their last meal. Traces from the camp showed that all group members left the tent on their own accord and on foot. So nobody was helping anybody else out. See, this is, this is where... Oh, anyway, hold that thought. High levels of radiation were found on some of the victims' clothing. Which also go, ties into alien abduction. Right. To help dispel any indication that the Mansai people were involved, uh, the forensic est- investigator... Vols Rodini stated that the fatal injuries sustained by the three hikers were so severe, and since no soft tissue had been damaged from the force, it could not have possibly been caused by another human being. Release documents contain no information about the hikers' internal organs. There were no survivors. It was on record that the group had died because of, quote, compelling natural force, end quote. The inquest officially ceased in May of 1959, as a result of the absence of a guilty party, the files were sent to a secret archive. Yeah, because that's that's not ominous or anything. Right, that's not a big fucking red flag. <laughs> exactly. Hey, hey, Steve, take them over to the secret archive, buddy. Yeah, it's just an avalanche yeah. that kills people by ripping their eyes and tongues out. Okay, 
That's what these avalanches do in these parts. Okay? If it's just a fucking avalanche, why are you putting it in a secret goddamn archive? You see what happened was, is all this radiation created avalanche monsters. True. It's like, it's basically, imagine a giant snow squid. As it's coming down the mountain, anticipate it to go. (laughs) As it's coming down the mountain, it plucks people's eyeballs out and their tongues. And maybe they, maybe they saw an unfathomable, unfathomable intergalactic being, and they couldn't make any sense of it. And as it was killing the rest of the party, they just ripped out their own eyeballs. I mean, that's not that far fetched. It makes you go crazy. That's like that that would be a good reason to file it in the secret archive. Yes. So, in 1997, it was revealed that negatives from Kurvonashenko's camera were kept private in an archive of one of the investigators, Lev Ivanov. So, there were pictures on the camera. Yeah, I forgot about the camera. It was donated by Ivanov's daughter to the Dyatlov Foundation. The diaries of the hiking party fell into Russia's public domain in 2009. There's actually one of the images on the camera that no one can account for. It's it's, uh, his 33rd image and i will share that on our uh, social medias and it it it's it's basically just a black picture but it's got some weird orbs in it and shit so who knows on april 12th 2018 remains of zolotorev were exhumed upon request from journalists of a russian tabloid paper because it was kind of picking up steam again on the internet and everything in 2018, so they requested to have him exhumed. And I guess in Russia, if you're a tabloid, you've got some pull. Cool. So you can get people dug up. Uh, contradictory reports were found. One of the experts stated that the state of the injuries were similar to a person being struck by a car, but the DNA analysis didn't match any DNA of any living relatives of the Zolotarev family. Cool. So now... Now... It could be a possible that at least him, if not everyone else, is all under fake names and identities. Right? It turned out that the name Simeon Zolotarov was not on the list of the buried at Ivanoskayov Cemetery. Well, where of they course. And remember, this is the guy who was added on at the very last point. Yeah, the very last the fucking, minute. The suspect dude. Reconstruction of the face from the exhumed skull went in line with post-war photos of Zolotarov, but journalists suspect that possibly another person could have been posing as Zolotarov after World War II. Why would you pose as Zolotarov? Because you're Russian. That's true. And you want to become grade three skier. <laughs> I mean, what better way to do it than to pose as somebody? And here is why I decided to do this case, because in 2019 it was reopened once again by the demand of the public but only three possible explanations were even being considered. An avalanche, a snow slab avalanche, or a hurricane. <laughs> Fuck yeah, it's a hurricane. The possibility of a crime or any other explanation were discounted before it was open. Which they just closed up here in July, and mm. they said it was an avalanche. Dope, which makes most sense. Um, side tangent here, I thought of something extremely funny. Here we are talk, talking shit on this dude that got added, right? At the very end, some creepy dude who gets added to your group. Now all of our listeners are going to be like at Six Flags on the fucking Thunder River and some random dick gets in their <laughs> raft and they're like, this motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> What'd you say your name was? Jeff? Is that your real name? Yeah, get out of my boat. 
I don't know. I just popped in my head. Other, <laughs> other interesting facts that I found was that there was a 12-year-old boy who attended um, five of the hikers' funerals. His name was Yuri Konstikev. He later became the head of the Dyatlov Foundation, which is a thing they put together to honor the the uh, hikers. Um, he attended five of the hikers' funeral, and he recalled that their skin had a deep brown tan to it. Another group Weird. of hikers, 30 miles south of the incident, reported that they saw strange orange spheres in the skies to the north the night of the incident. Similar spheres were observed in in or Ivedale and adjacent areas continually during the period from February to March of 1959 by various independent witnesses. However, these sightings were not noted in the initial investigation in 1959. These witnesses only came forward years later. So now we got Weird. UFOs. You got two more, two more factors that also point into the UFO direction. Yes. So on July 11th, 2020, as I said, that the official cause of death was by avalanche. So there was a theory that it was a Yeti attack. See, that's where I initially thought this was going. Because of the, the mountains and Siberia and all that jazz and like Prime Yeti Yes. Area. My my gut was telling me Yeti, but the more you you explain the story to me, the more it makes total sense that at the very least UFO slash aliens may have had a part in this. So to dispel the Yeti incident a bunch of people push the avalanche narrative. Uh, one of the one of the avalanche said the group wo- they kind of played it out in their own words. The group woke up in a panic, cut their way out of their tent because an avalanche had covered the entrance to their tent, or because they were scared that an avalanche was imminent. Maybe they had heard it. Better to have a potentially repairable slit in a tent than risk being buried alive. Absolutely. Uh, they were poorly clothed because they'd been sleeping, ran to the safety of nearby woods where trees would help slow the oncoming snow. In the darkness of night, they got separated in two or three groups. One group made a fire, hence the burned hands, which Kyle already called out, while the others tried to return to the tent to recover their clothing since the danger had passed. But it was too cold, and they all froze to death before they could locate their tents in the darkness. At some point, some of the clothes may have been recovered or swapped from the dead, but at any rate... The group of four bodies who was most severely damaged were caught in another avalanche and buried under four meters of snow, more than enough to account for the compelling natural force, yada, yada, yada. Evidence contradicting the avalanche theory. The location of the incident did not have any obvious signs of an avalanche had ever taken place. An avalanche would have left certain patterns and debris distributed over the wide area. The bodies found within a month of the event were covered with a very shallow layer of snow. And there had been an avalanche, had there been an avalanche sufficient enough strength to sweep away the second party, these bodies would have been swept away as well. This would have caused more serious and different injuries in the process and would have damaged the tree line. So like Kyle said, if you're going to swept away in an avalanche, you're going to get a bruise. Over 100 expeditions to the region were held since the incident, and none of them ever reported adi- air conditions that might create an avalanche. 
A study of the area using up-to-date terrain-related physics revealed that the location was entirely unlikely for such an avalanche to have occurred. The dangerous conditions found in another nearby area, which had significantly steeper slopes and uh, cornices, were observed in April and May when the snowfalls of winter were melting. During February, when the incident occurred, there were no such conditions because it was cold and the snow was pretty solid. Snowy. An analysis of the terrain and slope shows that even if there could have been a very specific avalanche that found its way around, its path would have gone past the tent. It had collapsed from the side, but not in a horizontal direction. Dyatlov was an experienced skier, and the much older Zolotorov was studying his master's certificate in ski instruction and mountain hiking. Neither of these two men would have been likely to camp anywhere in the path of a potential avalanche. Footprint patterns leading away from the tent were inconsistent with, inconsistent with people, let alone a group of nine, or with someone, let alone a group of nine, running in panic from either real or imminent danger. All the footprints leading away from the tent toward the woods were consistent with individuals who, who were walking at a normal pace. Uh, this whole thing is so fucking weird. It is fucking bizarre, man. Because, like, when we were, you were talking earlier about them cutting their way out of the tent, right? And they were walking toward the tree line. Um, One thing that's confusing for me, and once again, I'm not a cold weather expert either, but... I've seen people like videos of people hiking on Mount Everest and like crazy shit. How many of them, how many of those videos or pictures, even when they're sleeping, I mean, these motherfuckers, they carry a wood stove up there with a bunch of chopped wood. Why? Ain't nobody taking their goddamn clothes off. Thank you. Even when you're sleeping, you're not taking, you're not going down to your underwear. It's negative 30. It's not going to do it. You're not going to do it. So why? Were they half and fucking naked anyways? Unless, unless, the only logical quote-unquote explanation I can come up with is that maybe some of them were experiencing hypothermia. Yeah. That would legitimately be, in my opinion, which is not professional, but my opinion would be that maybe some of them were experiencing some form of hypothermia, and that's why they started taking some of their clothes off. Yep, that is a theory, actually. Um, Another theory outside of an avalanche is a catabatic wind. In 2019, a Swedish-Russian expedition was made to the site. After investigations, they proposed a violent catabatic wind was likely the explanation for the incident. Catabatic winds are somewhat rare events. Catabatic. It sounds so cool when you say it. I don't even know if that's how you pronounce it right, but whatever. It sounds dope. They are extremely violent. They were implicated in a 1978 case at the Anaris Mountain in Sweden where eight hikers were killed and one was seriously injured in the aftermath of a catabatic wind. The topography of these locations were noted to be very similar according to an expedition. A sudden catabatic wind would have made it impossible to remain in the tent and the most rational cause or course of actions would be for the hikers to take cover, uh, or be for the hikers to cover the tent with snow and seek shelter among the tree line. There was also a torch left turned on in the top of the tent, possibly left there intentionally so the hikers could find their way back to the tent once the wind subsided. The expedition proposed that the group of hikers constructed two bivouac uh, shelters, one of which collapsed, leaving four hikers buried with uh, violent injuries observed. So they think they dug out. So I'm assuming that a bivouac shelter is like a snow cave. Okay. So they dug a snow cave, it collapsed, and it buried them. Well, More hypotheses. Uh, infrared sound. 
Um, is a wind going around the Colat Sakol created a Carmen Vortex street, which can be produced, which can produce infrared sound capable of inducing panic attacks in humans. According to this theory, the infrared sound generated by the wind as it passed over the top of uh, Holotaco Mountain was responsible for causing physical discomfort and mental distress in the hikers. The theorist claims that because of their panic, the hikers were driven to leave the tent by whatever means necessary and fled down the slope. By the time they were further down the hill, they would have been out of the infrasound path and would have regained their composure but in the darkness would be unable to return to their shelter. The traumatic injuries suffered by three of the victims were the, revol- or were the result of their stumbling over the ledge of a ravine in the darkness and landing on the rocks at the bottom. So, the wind makes a sound that makes you go crazy. I mean, there are weirder things out there than that, but yeah, you would think that in order for that to work, it would have to be perfect. Yeah, I think it just shows that they're just kind of grasping at straws here because people don't. I could see that. the The main explanation of an avalanche is not cutting it. No, you know not I mean? for me. Hell no. Which I'll talk about that later. But uh, further on, military tests. Okay. Speculations exist that the campsite fell within the path of a Soviet parachute mine ex- exercise. This theory alleges that the hikers, woken by loud explosions, fled the tent in a shoeless panic and found themselves unable to return for supply retrieval. After some members froze to death attempting attempting to endure the bombardment, others commandeered their clothing only to be fatally injured by a subsequent parachute mine concussion. There are indeed records of parachute mines being tested by the Soviet military in the area around the time the hikers were there. Parachute mines detonate while still in the air, rather than upon striking the Earth's surface and produce signature injuries similar to those experienced by the hikers. Heavy internal damage with comparably less external trauma. The theory coincides with reported sightings of glowing orange orbs floating or falling in the sky within the general vicinity of the hikers and allegedly photographed by them. Potential military aircraft are descending parachute mines. This theory, among others, uses scavenging animals to explain Dubonina's injuries. Some speculate the bodies were unnaturally manipulated due to characteristic liver mortis markings discovered during an autopsy as well as burns to hair and skin. Photographs of the tent allegedly show that it was erected incorrectly, something the experienced hikers were unlikely to have done. A similar theory alleges that the testing of radiological weapons and is partly based on this discovery of radioactivity on some of the clothing, as well as the bodies being described by relatives as having an orange or brown skin and gray hair. However, radioactive dispersal would have affected all of the hikers and equipment instead of just some. And the skin and hair discoloration can be explained by a natural process of mummification after three months of exposure to the cold winds. Furthermore, the initial suppression... Of files regarding the group's disappearance by Soviet authorities is sometimes mentioned as evidence of a cover-up, but the concealment of the information regarding domestic incidents was standard procedure in the USSR, and therefore far from peculiar. By the late 1980s, all of the files had been released in some manner. So that sounds like a pretty good uh, theory. It does, except for one little key factor. Like, I mean, it does sound logical. It's like, okay, 
when you have concussion and everything else coming off of minds, which can cause a lot of fucking damage to the human body. Yeah. But the one thing that I still, well, the two things I still have a problem with. Why were you naked, sleeping in negative 30-degree weather, unless you're just ultra badasses, and then the the findings that the footsteps indicate that they were not running from their tent. They yeah. were walking in a unit. If you heard explosions, you'd be getting the fuck out of there. Thank you. Yeah. Simple. So the clothing thing could possibly be explained by uh, paradoxal undressing. Uh, International Science Times posted that hikers' deaths were caused by hypothermia, which can induce a behavior known as paradoxal undressing. Paradoxical. Yeah, paradoxical undressing, in which hypothermia subjects remove their clothes in response to perceived feelings of burning warmth. It is undisputed that six of the nine hikers died of hypothermia. However, others in the group appear to have acquired additional clothing from those who had already died, which suggests they were of a sound enough mind to add layers. So that could suggest some of the undressing. Okay, and then the other thing with the military experiment, the explosions... You still got to answer for the missing eyes and the missing tongue and the missing eyebrows and lips. Yeah. And you'd think if there were mines detonating all around, there would be evidence of them in the snow. If you have a pressure hard enough to hit somebody to make it look like they were hit by a car, there would be indentions and shit in the snow. But these people, they, they didn't even find footprints in the snow. Yeah, or, or um, maybe, maybe pieces of the parachute or whatever. I mean, like you said, there's got to be some type of physical evidence. Yeah. So... Um, let's see here. I got a whole bunch of shit still here, but I'm going to try to wind her down a little bit. <laughs> this case is just bizarre. Yeah. It is all, it is, and it feels like no matter which way you go, you're just constantly getting the runaround. Yeah. So there was a, uh, a guy who, an investigator who put together a documentary about the incident he evaluated a, f- a bunch of the theories and disproved them. So they were attacked by the Mansai people or other local tribesmen. Local tribesmen are known to be extremely peaceful in the area, and there were no track evidence by anyone approaching the tent. Grass that were, off. They were attacked by animals or chased by animal wildlife. Again, no animal tracks. The group would not have abandoned their relatively high security of the tent. High winds may have blew one member away, and others attempted to rescue them. Uh, a large experienced group would not have behaved like that and wind strong enough to blow people away with such force also would have blown away the tent touche another argument is possibly related to a romantic encounter the less some of them partially clothed which led to a violent dispute he states this is highly implausible by all indication the group was largely largely harmonious and sexual tension was confined to platonic and flirt plutonic flirtation and crushes there were no drugs present and the only alcohol was a small flask of medicinal alcohol found intact at the scene the group had even sworn off cigarettes for the expedition furthermore a fight could not have left the massive injuries that one or two of the bodies had suffered yeah i mean totally interestingly enough i guess it was a Soviet form of bonding that they would in their diaries and stuff make little little like news strips newspapers so they made one the evening before they died and it was titled the evening or which is the mountain they were on it bore the headline from now on we know that the snowmen exist 
It goes on to say they can be met in the northern Urals next to Ortorton Mountain. Cool. Ominous, right? That, yeah, for sure. Like they were probably talking about themselves being on the mountain, but after what happens and the Yeti theories and shit uh, makes it fucking, or maybe they saw something that we didn't know. It's very possible. So I'm here to tear this avalanche fucking theory apart, right? Yeah. So they're telling us an avalanche hit the tent. Uh-huh. Let's go with it. Avalanche comes down, wipes the tent out. They're stuck there. They're like, oh, fuck, we got to get out. An avalanche just happened. Because avalanche doesn't take very long. Let's say it takes a minute to come down and bury the tent and shit. So they cut themselves yeah. out. Stroll peacefully. They First off, you're in the tent. You know where you're, you know your stuff is at least confined to the tent. Because you have to cut yourself out. Nothing's right. open. Instead and- of grabbing stuff that will help them. They cut open the tent and they just take a walk. So now you're out and it's cold and you're fucked. Still don't know why some of them don't have their clothes on. Can't write that off. So two of them go and build a fire to try to get warm after they climb the tree or get chased up the tree or whatever. So they want us to believe that these two people died at the fire after the avalanche, right? Mm -hmm. These other three, trying to make their way back to the tent, died of hypothermia after the avalanche in an area that wasn't supposed to have an avalanche, is not prime for avalanches, it's too cold for avalanches, but then they want me to believe that the last four died of being buried from a second avalanche after the first avalanche because they all didn't die during the first avalanche because four of them dudes, dudettes, went back and took clothes off the other dead people. Right. And the thing that really fucks me is that they said they all died within six to eight hours of eating their last meal. What the fuck? So. Oy, oy, oy. Because, you I have mean, the first crew die, and then the second crew goes and gets their clothes and just goes off and dies? Right. And not to mention, like, if it's truly negative 30 degrees up there, I don't think that if you're half naked, it's going to take very long to kill you. No, no. You wouldn't think so So you at would all. think that they over the course of at least, what, a, a 600-yard hike, the first time probably would have put you in a really fucking bad spot. Then you have the peace of mind to gather firewood, start a fire, climb the tree. I doubt it. Right? I doubt it, because think about it. If you're walking, bare, even just barefoot, say you have all your other winter gear on, but you're just barefoot, how long do you think it's going to be before frostbite sets in, before you can't feel your feet, before bad things start to happen? It cannot be Not very long. long. Not can't be long. long. It's like you're saying, so you mean to tell me, that some of these half-naked people, they walked 600-plus yards to the tree line, decided to break into groups, turn around, and some of them decided to walk back to go get more shit. I'm with you. I don't think that that's plausible. Yeah, and in that time span from when they they last... So let's say they all ate dinner at the same time. Say 6 o'clock o'clock that night. The th- even fucking disregard that. The fact that they said they all died within six to eight hours. You have a two-hour time gap that some of those people died and then the rest of them went off, took their clothes off of their dead friends, built a fucking snow cave, and then died within an hour of, of massive internal injuries. <laughs> 
Because another thing, they found four people in that ravine. Three of them had fatal injuries, and one of them died of hypothermia. Yeah, which makes tons of sense. It was an avalanche, though. I don't know. Like, I don't know. I really don't know. I don't know. I've I've heard this story over and over again since I've been interested in the paranormal and just boggles my mind. Like, there's so many little and the fact fucking that, details. The fact that their fucking clothes, some of their clothes had radiation on them, is just swept under the fucking rug. Yeah, yeah. Like, like it was an avalanche. And then the fact that some of them look sunburnt. Yeah, some of them had radiation. Some of them didn't. Like. Like it was an avalanche, but just fuck? don't fucking worry about the radiation, the radiated clothing. Just don't and even like, fucking worry about it. Just ignore it. Like to begin with, like why do you cut yourself out of a tent unless you're buried? You know what I mean? Like yeah. What other reason? And if you look at the pictures, the tent is not that buried by snow. Right. Which I think kind of pushed the whole wind theory that the wind was so bad that they threw some snow on their tent to Makes keep it sense. from blowing away. But, but nevertheless, why cut your way yeah, out? Yeah, why would you cut your way out? And not to mention, like, if an avalanche was coming, what do you think the odds are? Because I, I assume that... One would assume it'd be in the middle of the night when this was happening because they proposed that they were sleeping. So what are the odds that you're going to be sleeping and you notice an avalanche and within seconds you're able to pull your knife cut your way out you'd almost have to let the avalanche do its work first right yeah because you're probably you're probably getting tossed around but they said the tent wasn't set up correctly how would you know that unless the tent was still for the most part standing yeah true i don't know there's so many curveballs in this one that i don't even fucking clue like my best guess would be fucking aliens fucking aliens (laughs) Fucking aliens, man. I always thought, I, I always had my heart set on like a uh, fucking rogue, bloodthirsty Yeti was the thing that always crossed my mind. But when I read into it and there was no footprints, and then I'm like, well, dude, Yeti's, Yeti is a metaphysical being. He doesn't have to leave fucking footprints unless he wants it's to. It's true. But the, I, I, I just, just see don't him, understand. I just see him fucking pissed they're there they're making noise on his mountain you got the soviet union military dropping bombs on his mountain he's like you know what i'm sick of fucking humans i just see him fucking just tossing russian hikers one after another probably didn't happen like that i can't get around the half naked people and the missing eyes and tongue and the fact that she was still alive when her tongue was ripped from her mouth yeah that was also a yeti Yeti says, quit your yelling. I don't know, man. I don't know. Dude, that, that, like, there's so many, like you said, so many different curveballs. Her, um, her wounds. And the sneaky plant guy. Sound like, uh, alien mutilation. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Like, they're like, yeah, scavengers got them. They're buried under 13 feet of fucking snow. Yeah. Maybe they were just dropped from the sky. Like, what What scavenger fucking lives under 13 feet of snow? Something we don't know about. And and it only, like, the other dude was missing his eyeballs, which sounds like bird predation. But there are no birds under 13 feet of snow. And the fact that the other bodies that were essentially left out in the open were not scavenged. Yeah, true. 
I don't know, man. I, I don't, don't know. know, dude. And the fact that other hikers saw the the bright lights and shit. That's another weird one. It's fucking weird. It's t- it's all weird. I don't even I don't even know. I really don't. No, but I know it wasn't. It, there may have been a fucking avalanche, but it is not the sole. No. Because if you got fucking radioactive avalanches in Russia, you got way more shit to worry about than fucking aliens. Touche. So, yeah, we're going to wrap it up there. We don't know. Not even close. We're just at a loss, but I just wanted to share this with any of you that have not heard the story. Feel free to dive down this rabbit hole. I just scratched the surface and gave you the info. Most of uh, my information came from Wikipedia. Um, yeah, thanks for bearing with me on my shitty Russian. I apologize to any Russian listeners we have out there for butchering <laughs> those names. Feel free to just, just leave me a bad review. but yeah that's the Dyatlov Pass incident I hope you all enjoyed it Uh, until next time check us out at all our social medias Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter come and hang out until we meet again stay safe stay weird and if you ever find yourself in the Ural Mountains in negative 30 degree weather stay inside your goddamn tent Naked or not, just stay in your tent. At all costs. Yeah, because bad shit happens outside of the tent. <laughs>